0: Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer Thank hours you. for less money. Obamacare. These illegal immigrants the uh, are americans are uh, being mistreated I mean, in society. I'm that world leaders laughed right. at new President new Trump. Thanks for President Trump right, on trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan:
1: 2020. America Great!
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision, as we unpack the issues, policies and personalities dominating the campaign in the 2020 US presidential election. The proposed breakup of big tech and treatment of workers in Amazon warehouses has dominated discussion among Democratic candidates this week, while the White House has released President Trump's proposed 2020 budget, and negotiations continue over the tit-for-tat tariff war between the United States and China. Our guest this week is going to talk us through a number of these issues, but before we meet her, let's have a listen to what Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren had to say in regards to her latest salvo against the big technology companies. Another day, another big, bold, new shoot-the-moon policy proposal from a Democratic presidential contender. Senator
1: Elizabeth Warren has been criticizing social media websites, including Facebook, and has a plan for breaking them up using antitrust legislation. They think they can come to towns, cities, states, and bully everyone into doing what they want it is time to break up america's tech giants
0: a huge huge more than a warning shot it is a weird coming after you if i win facebook proves elizabeth warren's point by deleting her facebook ads about breaking up facebook
1: because they said she used the facebook logo Logo, right and then they later put (laughs) it back (laughs) up yeah what's happening i mean someone put a a tag on my back said kick me and i'm gonna take it off (laughs) They think they can scoop up all of our personal data and sell it to whoever they want for whatever purposes. They think they can run their business to just roll right over every small business, every entrepreneur, every startup that might threaten their position. And what does our government in Washington do?
0: Our guest this week has worked for the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia, the Australian Institute of International Affairs, and is currently a member of the US Consul General Sydney's Youth Advisory Council. She's also responsible for the United States Studies Centre's corporate engagement strategy. Freya Zemek, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Drew. Unemployment is at uh, record lows at the moment in the United States, and President Trump's prioritised massive corporate tax cuts in his first year in office, as well as uh, cutting regulation. Is it fair to say at this point that Trump's been good for business in the US?
1: Look, there's no question that the economy's been really strong since President Trump took office. You know, at the moment, average growth is 59 basis points faster than during the Obama recovery. And there's been a lot of deficit spending by government that's driven that. I would say there's a couple of caveats to that, though. You know, Trump's manner of execution with the number of his policy agenda items has created a lot of volatility. But if you're watching his policy speeches in the lead up to 2016, a lot of that is quite predictable, what he said he's going to do in terms of deregulation and tax cuts he's basically followed through with. The two areas where I think you know, maybe there's a little bit of grey areas around whether this has been good for business, is small business. You know, if you're a small company and cash flow tends to be an issue, if this massive raft of uh, corporate tax code changes have come through, you don't necessarily have the manpower or the capital to try and get up to speed with what's required of you. So that's been a big issue. And the other thing is, you know, we've seen the president isn't afraid to name names when it comes to companies he has a little bit of beef with. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so you've seen stock prices felled by a single tweet from the president. So that's something else to keep in mind.
0: Uh, one of the sectors closely watching the democratic field for 2020 at the moment is big tech. Elizabeth Warren, as we just heard earlier this week, called for the breakup of large tech companies, arguing they're, uh, they're too powerful. Um, are there details at this stage on how she'd attempt to do that if she was elected or even if it's legal?
1: Yeah, so her plan at this stage is twofold. So the first part is for companies with an annual re- global revenue of $25 billion or more. She's proposing that they be designated platform utilities. And right. what this means is that they would be allowed to both own the platform and be a participant in it, so sell things on that platform.
0: right. okay.
1: So basically, the second part of the plan is to appoint regulators that are committed to rolling back what she alleges are anti-competitive tech mergers, so things like Facebook and Google for okay. uh, Facebook and Instagram, rather. Yep. Now is this legal? Well, not really, because in the Sherman Act, which is the uh, key antitrust legislation in the US, there's nothing that says a company is not allowed to have an, a monopoly. They're just not allowed to entrench and enforce that monopoly. Okay. So it's, I would say at this point, unlikely that attempts to break up these tech companies are going to be successful. And why is that? Well, we've been here before with Microsoft back in um, the 1990s. Right, of course. So this was a landmark case in the world of antitrust for the software industry. And basically Microsoft had a monopoly in the operating system market. Yep. And the US government accused them of entrenching that monopoly by tying Windows and Internet Explorer, so effectively blocking competition from rival web browsers. So the initial proposal was to break up Microsoft. However, that was appealed and they ended up with just placing some legal restrictions around them. So based on that precedent, I'd say that there's a low probability that these tech companies are going to be broken up and they'd be using that precedent and preparing to fight any proposals by Elizabeth Warren through the court system if she gets elected.
0: This is the latest album, what some have uh, dubbed a, a tech clash uh, in the United States. Um, Amazon recently abandoned plans to open a new headquarters in New York after a campaign against it by progressive activists. A couple of years ago, we couldn't get enough of these big tech companies. So what's what sort of changed?
1: I think... Put simply, concern about privacy has yep. really eroded public trust. Okay. So what's happened with Amazon is a symptom of this trend where consumers and often shareholders as well expect a lot more from companies as global corporate citizens. Right. So as a consequence, we've seen companies pour a lot more money into things like impact marketing, yep. corporate social responsibility. And that's particularly pronounced in areas where they might have a factory or they have a lot of their target market. I think we will probably look back on this Amazon decision yep. in years to come as one of the first major departures from what are called opportunity zones in the US. So basically, this is when a particular jurisdiction will give companies a range of incentives like tax holidays to try and get them to set up in their particular city.
0: Yep.
1: Um, so we've seen this, for example, with. Twitter in San Francisco, in a particularly sort of lower socioeconomic area of San Francisco, they gave Twitter a tax holiday to come and set their office up there. And this has been a standard practice across the US for quite a number of years. You know, the benefits are alleged to be job creation. But on the other hand, a lot of people criticize this and say it actually pushes vulnerable constituents out of those areas to make way for people with a higher propensity to...
0: Yeah, rents get higher, all that sort of stuff. Exactly.
1: So what's been really interesting is, you know, I was in the US a couple of years ago and the cities I visited and spoke to local officials in, they were bending over backwards, trying to push their case for Amazon to set up their second HQ there. Now the speed at which this turnaround has happened... so quickly. ...is just breathtaking. And I think it speaks to... Two things, a, the ease with which populist movements Um, Like what's happened in New York has been able to mobilize thanks to social media. But also the way these have diluted the potency of corporate lobbying in a way that hasn't been possible previously.
0: Yeah, a lot of this is coming from potential Democratic candidates in 2022. So it seems to be almost a prerequisite if you're running for for office to be sort of at least critical or cynical of of these big tech companies sort of moving in.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's part of that sort of populist wave that we've seen sweep across the world in the last few years. And I think it's not going away.
0: As if to prove Elizabeth. Warren's point this week: Facebook got itself into trouble blocking ads from her campaign advocating for the breakup of these companies. How much do you think these scandals involving the democratic process—so things like the 2016 Russian interference scandal uh, and the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal—how much has that impacted? I think this negative or suddenly negative view of these tech companies.
1: I think, at its core, you know, this concern around the internet taking on a life of its own has become the dominant consideration. Right. So you know. It's thirty years this week since the yeah, internet that's right. was yeah, the founded yeah, it was initially sold to consumers as this benign platform where it's going to democratize the world's yep. information and the services that you can access on it. Somewhere along the way in the last thirty years, it's become this very opaque institution. There's not a lot of transparency around algorithms, which yep. is driving a lot of this blowback that we're seeing yeah. from consumers. You know, individuals' data and their online pr- uh, footprint is being monetized in a way that I think, very few people could have conceived of 30 years ago. And so now it's this perception of a loss of control that they weren't necessarily expecting. I guess one thing we've got to think about is the way we want to regulate these tech companies proportional to the way we might want to regulate other sectors. Mm -hmm. Or is this an outsized reaction that we're having because of the level of influence they have? our lives.
0: It's not just politicians that are concerned about big tech dominance. Uh, This week, we saw News Corp call for a breakup of Google's operations. Why are media businesses so keen to see these sort of sell-offs or breakups of Google's business units?
1: It's a great question. And I think the answer is twofold. Um, You know, it goes to the heart of what's crippling the news media business model. So the first one, obviously we hear about this all the time, it's disrupting the advertising model that they've relied on, the rivers of gold, so to speak. But it's also that the social media algorithms that these, you know, Facebook and Google, et cetera, use don't necessarily privilege the news organisations that have invested the resources to chase down these stories, you know, have these really strong investigative journalism arms. So until that sort of algorithm issue is addressed, you're going to see these news outlets, particularly the ones that have that strong focus on investigative journalism, push back on that. This is particularly the case in Australia where we just don't have the market size or the global brand power that someone like a New York Times has, where they've been able to weather this a lot better than some of the smaller players we have here. But I think to say, you know, to go back to our earlier discussion about antitrust, keep an eye on the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry, because I think we could see Elizabeth Warren try to emulate this process- in the run-up to 2020 as she's trying to crack down on big tech. you know There's echoes of that around the world in the EU as well.
0: Uh, last month, the uh, US uh, Court of Appeals in Washington DC heard arguments in what's been called the most high-profile legal battle uh, in the history of the internet. Uh, it's a case to decide internet regulation, or so called net neutrality. You've written a fair bit about this issue. Can you explain for listeners maybe who aren't as familiar with this issue, or at least sort of the stakes involved, what is this case all about?
1: So, Net neutrality rules basically means that internet service providers, ISPs, have to treat all the data content equally. So they can't do things like create paid fast lanes right. for particular types of content um, or throttle the speeds at which they deliver content to consumers. Okay,
0: so some websites would be faster than others under what they would want or propose, is that? Potentially, it? yes. Right. So
1: if they've got a particular partnership with a content provider, yep. or if they're vertically integrated and yep. provide their own content, they can pr- privilege that content um, at faster speeds versus a rival. Okay. So for listeners, you know, this is going to have big impl- implications for things like streaming services like yep. Netflix. Yep. That's probably the most salient example. Okay. Um, but it really touches virtually everything that you might use broadband internet for. Okay. So this has gone back and forth in the US through the courts. You know, back in 2015, the Obama administration brought in the open internet order. That's since been repealed by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, in 2017. And now there's been a lot of debate since then. And even just this week, the Democrats in the House have introduced a bill to try and reinstate those Obama-era regulations right. around net neutrality. So um, we haven't heard the last of it.
0: No. And it looks like it'll be settled either in Congress or in the courts.
1: Yeah. Yes. And there's a fairly vocal coalition of supporters of net neutrality from quite interesting parts of the internet community mm-hmm. that are backing it.
0: You wrote a piece last week for young Australians in international affairs looking at US-China competition and the ramifications for Australia. This is another area I think that people have a maybe a peripheral awareness or understanding of and a lot of the discussion certainly in Australia sort of seems to be focused on national security issues. Let's have a listen to some of the back and forth on this issue from the White House. It looks very much
1: like the trade
0: war fears are very real. 5% for steel. It'll be 10% for aluminum. Retaliation. Starting today, China will slap tariffs on $3 billion worth of U.S. Trump goods. Trump just announced that he's imposing 10% tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. There doesn't seem to be any quick resolution of this thing, and the president is pretty resolute. Will Presidents Trump and Xi find a way to end the trade war over some Argentinian steak? the leaders of the world's two biggest economies will meet on Saturday on the sidelines of the G20 in Buenos Aires. Looking for
1: the United States, I would say it's probably more likely that a deal does happen. News breaking over the weekend that President Xi now uh, getting very concerned about the possibility of a summit in Florida. He saw Donald Trump walk away uh, from uh, the summit in Hanoi uh, with North Korea.
0: He doesn't want to fly all the way to Florida to be embarrassed by the president. I'm
1: in no rush. I want the deal to be right. Much more importantly, it's, uh, somebody said, I'm in a rush. I'm not in a rush at all. Right now, uh, we're getting billions and billions of dollars of tariffs
0: paid into our coffers. I am not in a rush whatsoever. It's got to be the right deal. It's got to be a good deal for us. And if it's not, we're not going to make that deal. But I will say that deal going along very nicely. Freya, from an economic standpoint, how is business being affected by this ongoing trade war?
1: So I think it's important to distinguish here between the long-run impacts and the short-run impacts. Okay. So in the short term, you know, Australian exports are more competitive, thanks to a falling Aussie dollar, yep. and certain sectors, particularly agricultural products for us, will benefit from substitution. So... US products are going to be comparatively more expensive and therefore Chinese consumers might look towards Australia as an alternative to provide some of these goods. In the long run though, a trade war is going to depress global demand and that hurts businesses everywhere, but especially Australia because we're so heavily trade exposed and we're essentially a price taker on these global markets.
0: Apple announced in January it had missed um, revenue targets thanks to falling demand in China. Markets have also been a bit volatile because of fears of this global slowdown that you just mentioned. We know Trump is a bit of a market watcher. Do you think that puts pressure on him to come to a deal and lift tariffs as soon as possible?
1: I think the flip side might be true, that markets are very responsive to how these negotiations are progressing. But I don't think the market machinations are a dominant consideration for Trump that's forcing his hand on okay, these deals. Right. So on this issue, I think Trump is predominantly driven by the key constituents in his base. So think farmers, think auto workers um, who are highly trade exposed and they can't afford to have this trade war stretch into the never-ending future.
0: Uh, on a completely separate issue, uh, last week we had International Women's Day. One of the areas I think it's fair to say has been sort of lacking in female representation has been foreign policy scholarship and public conversation on foreign policy. As someone in that field, what do you think it's going to take to remedy this underrepresentation in the practice of international affairs in Australia?
1: So I think the first step towards better female representation is visibility. Yeah. So it's been really uplifting in recent years to have female foreign minister yeah, female yeah. defense minister yeah. female shadow foreign minister
0: yes, that's
1: right um, yeah. So having that sort of visibility and role models is is very important. Mm-hmm. We also have a responsibility, I think, in the world of think tanks to try and break the mould of this perception of think tanks as the domain of the pale, stale male brigade. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: yep.
1: Um, so that really means for us looking beyond what are sometimes the loudest voices in the room yep. and trying harder to seek out those diverse perspectives. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy to put up a, a panel of all... All male experts, but with the entire think tank community coming together to take what's sometimes called in the private sector the panel pledge, which is a commitment to only speaking on panels that have an equal gender representation. Yep. I think we're going to start seeing a bit of a shift in terms of how we perceive um, who are the most authoritative voices on a particular
0: issue. Well, from this pale, stale male, thank you very much for joining (laughs) us this week. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) If you're interested in hearing more about the economic climate in the United States and its impact on Australia, on March 20 in Sydney, we're hosting the global head of economic research for indeed.com, Martha Gimble, in conversation with the United States Studies Centre's Director of Trade and Investment, Dr Stephen Kirchner. They'll be talking about income inequality. And on March 28, the centre will host a speech by Microsoft President Brad Smith, who's in Australia talking artificial intelligence, ethics and governance, and the use of facial recognition technology. There's information and tickets to both events available on our website, ussc.edu.au. Thanks this week to the MIT Concert Choir, Chad Crouch, Lobo Loco, and the Bubba Brass Band for their musical contributions, and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.